Uh, We're joyful to be preaching through the letter of Ephesians in the New Testament. If you want to begin to turn there in your Bibles, we're in chapter 4 today. We'll be focusing on verse 7 through 10. And what a joy it's been. What a powerful letter that's ordained for us. Um, It's just such a joy to, to preach expositionally through his word and see the power of God at work in the word. Um, we have a lot to cover in just four verses this morning, and so I want to jump right in by looking at verse 7. Look with me, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Paul begins this verse with the word but. This is how he transitions to speaking about us in our unity as the church, uh, as been his focus in the prior verses in the opening of this chapter, beautiful uh, exhortations about the unity of the body of Christ and all that that is and is to be in our lives. But now he says, but, and he's beginning now to speak about us individually, the, the makeup of that diverse body of Christ, saying that each of us is given grace According to Christ. Church, hear clearly that the grace we're given is according to Christ, not according to anything we have done or anyone we have been connected to. While grace is given to each of us, if for not, there is no salvation for any of us. While grace is given to each of us, the gifts that Christ gives to us as individuals Within the body, they vary. They vary. Those gifts vary in their influence, in their function, and in some cases, even their formality as assigned offices within the church. The details of these gifts we'll get into next week as we move into verse 11 and beyond. But first and foremost, this morning, Paul's focus on these verses, 7-10, through 10, is largely centered around the gift of Christ Himself to the church. That is the work that Christ has done on our behalf, the victory He's claimed for all who trust in Him alone for salvation. Let me ask you to contemplate for a moment, what is the best gift you've ever been given in your lifetime? For the sake of time, for those of you who have trusted your life to Jesus Christ, I'm going to help you with this one. It is that you are saved by the blood of God the Son. This is the greatest gift you've ever been given, the gift of God's grace to send Christ, that He would take on flesh, to die in our place, to conquer sin and death, and rise again as the forerunner of resurrection, that we too would be reconciled to the Holy God and forever would enjoy Him. May it be so. Praise God. Without Jesus' gift of His life, death, and resurrection, we would have no spiritual life. Without God's grace to give us this incredible gift, we would have no spiritual life. We are so dependent on His grace. Why? Because, church, we didn't deserve it. Because we couldn't accomplish it on our own. We were hopeless captives. Spiritually dead in sin. This is what makes God's gift of grace so utterly game-changing. What is saving grace and why is it the greatest gift ever given? The definition of grace in its simplistic form. Grace is unmerited favor. Or an undeserved gift given by an unobligated giver. The Word of Truth Catechism tells us that saving grace is God's love, forgiveness, and redemption freely and effectively given in Jesus to the elect who are undeserving of this. First and foremost, we must understand and fully appreciate that God's saving grace is a gift. It's a gift from God, and it's a gift that only God can give. 
for saving grace to truly be grace, two things have to be true of it. Its recipients must not be deserving in any way to be saved, or it's not grace. And the giver must not be obligated in any way, or it's not grace. God is not obligated to give His saving grace. His obligation is due our sin with justice and judgment and wrath. And fallen mankind is not deserving to receive God's saving grace. Again, we deserve, because of our sin, God's justice, judgment, and wrath for our sin. Many think, wrongly, that God owes mankind a chance at heaven. God does owe sinful mankind something. But I assure you, it's not heaven that He owes us. He owes unrepentant, sinful man His righteous and eternal wrath. That's the justice of God at work. If this is not His verdict, then God would simply not be just. To say that guilty mankind is owed freedom when we are guilty and worthy of punishment because of our sin is an unjust ruling. We must see that God is not obligated to be gracious to sinful mankind. If He was, grace is no longer grace. You have people, sadly, in a modern church who will speak grace and sing about grace and then talk in such a way where a good God owes mankind a chance at heaven and it's proof that they don't understand grace and therefore lose why it's so amazing that He saves any. This is Paul's point in Romans eleven six, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. The Scriptures are clear that man and women are sinful by nature. We cannot do anything to save ourselves or prepare ourselves to be saved. The Scriptures are equally clear that it is God who saves by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Look with me at verse 7 and feel the weight of what Paul's saying here. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Who decides who is given God's grace? God does. Because it's only His to give. Only when we rightly see that none of us, not our favorite child or sweet old grandma, deserves God's grace, only then do we begin to see just how amazing it is that God graciously gives the gift of new life in Christ to anyone. And that it is a gift like no other. Amen? When we begin to get this church, it leaves us with nothing but an overwhelmed desire to worship Him. And and to testify of His glorious grace to others who don't yet know of it. It is God alone who acts first on the sinner while the sinner is dead in sin. The good news is that while sinners do not seek God, God graciously seeks and saves sinners. He does this with His saving grace. It is God who sent Jesus to live without sin, to die in the place of sinners, to conquer death by rising from the grave as the forerunner of resurrection for all of the captives set free by Jesus unto eternal life with God. This is Paul's emphasis in the coming verses. Look with me at verse 8-10. through 10. Therefore it says, When He ascended on high... He led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. In saying He ascended, what does it mean but that He also had descended into the lower regions, the earth? 
He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fulfill all things. There are many wonderful layers to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that Paul points out to his hearers as he's speaking of this ultimate gift of Christ himself. Church, please see and savor the fact that we have nothing without Jesus. We have no hope if not for Jesus to humbly take on flesh. If He didn't live without sin, we have no hope. If He didn't willingly die on the cross in our place to take on the wrath we earned, we deserved. If He didn't rise again from the grave, leading the faithful who have already died, to victory as the forerunner of our coming resurrection, to be in glory with God forever. We have no hope if not for these things. Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection is the greatest gift we've ever been given. Church, this is why we sing. This is why we study. This is why we testify to others. This is why you live today. For this gospel truth. Let's dive into verse 8-10 through 10 and see some of the layers of what Christ has done for all who trust in Him. First, consider with me His descension because that comes before His ascension. This is Christ's emphasis in verse 9. Look with me. Verse 9, In saying He ascended, what does it mean but that He had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? Church, the descension of Christ, as we read about it here, has some layers of application that theologians and pastors have spent time with over many generations. And we're going to get to some of those other layers. But let's first understand that the dissension of Christ is first and foremost the doctrine of the Incarnation. Let's consider the power and the beauty of this doctrine as we see God the Son humble Himself to take on flesh. Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word, Jesus Christ, God the Son, took on flesh and dwelt among mankind. See, He descended from His heavenly glory to become just like us, yet without sin, so that He could do what we could not do, which is to provide full and complete satisfaction for God's wrath, do our sin, so that we could be reconciled to God both now and forever. Understand that incarnation does not mean that God dwelt in a man, but that God the Son became a man. To understand the incarnation rightly, we must know that He became that he became what he was not previously, but never ceased to be all that he was before. Augustine famously says that Christ added to himself which he was not. He did not lose what he was. The babe in the manger that first Christmas had been conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin and was named Emmanuel, meaning God with us. His deity, though veiled, was never laid aside, church. His humanity, though sinless, was real humanity. He was and is the God-man, but we must see Him rightly, that the divine and the human in Him were never confounded. The fact that Jesus took on flesh is astounding. The dissension of God the Son in this way is amazing. Praise God for the incarnation. That He incarnate, He took on flesh. Meat. For His perfect plan was executed for our good and for His eternal glory. Consider with me the, the beauty of the fact that God the Son humbled Himself to dwell among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt to tent 
or encamp or occupy or reside as God dwelt or tabernacled among his people in the old, how much more did he dwell among man in the flesh? He essentially pitched his tent on earth for 33 or so years. This was not a minor act, but a massive measure of humiliation and accommodation like no one has ever done or can equal. Philippians 2, 5-8 through Have the mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God the Son became a real man, yet it is critical that we understand that He was sinless. Hebrews 7.26 tells us that He was holy, innocent, unstained, and separated from sinners. Even though He was tempted in every way like we are, He did not sin. Hebrews 4.15 We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So why is the dissension of Jesus so important? And listen, church, here's the good news. It changes everything. 1 Corinthians 5.21 says, He, speaking of God the Father, made Him, speaking of God the Son, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is not just a matter of historical study, the incarnation of Jesus. Church, it changes everything. Everything that is good and eternal about your life hinges on the reality of the incarnation of Christ to do this. Without Jesus' birth, we have no new birth. Jesus said in John 6, 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Dissension language. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give him for the life of this word world is my flesh. If there is no incarnation, if there is no dissension, there is no regeneration. For us. Therefore, there is no salvation from sin and no salvation from eternal suffering apart from God. Why is the incarnation of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, so essential? Hebrews 2.17, Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is Paul's point. The dissension of God, the Son, to put on flesh, in the incarnation, to live without sin, and die in the place of sinners, is the very gospel that unites us. Praise God for the incarnation of Christ and the sacrificial death of Christ and the victorious resurrection of Christ. Now there's another layer to Christ's dissension which is connected to the time that He was in the grave after the cross. It's one that's confounded with confusion and misbelief on biblical understanding often. So we climb into a few layers here for some clarity if you remember Jesus' words to the thief on the cross, he said in Luke 23, 43, Truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. While our eternity with God in heaven surely will be paradise like we have never dreamed or known, Christ did not go to heaven after the cross, but before His resurrection, He descended to a place called paradise. 
Scripture speaks of a place called Sheol, which is, has two vastly different regions within it. One of those regions is called Hades. This is the place where those without true faith in the promised Messiah suffer in captivity as a result of their unrepentant sin. This is a place of true torment and suffering while the guilty essentially wait for their final trial, the final judgment, by which they will be judged guilty for their sin and thrown into the lake of fire of eternal torment, also known as hell. The other region in Sheol is often referred to as Abraham's bosom or paradise. Abraham's bosom, while within shouting distance of Hades, is separated from it by a great chasm and is completely different experience in that it is a place of comfort and rest. Those who were confined to Abraham's bosom were the children of Abraham. That is, those of true faith in the promised Redeemer. As Paul says in Galatians 3.7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. As Paul says in Romans 9, 6-8, very important clarity for our soteriology, our understanding of how God saves, specifically how election happens for the individual and not for groups. He says this, Romans 9, 6-8, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. The descendants of the ethnic group Israel don't all belong to the elect of God, true Israel, is what he's saying there. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, physical offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. It is the elect of God that are in paradise prior to Jesus' ascension. Those who put their faith in the promised Messiah. Those who had true faith in Jesus. The only way to salvation. The fact that we're saved in faith alone, through Christ alone, is true of all the saved. Before Christ and after. They are those God set out to redeem from before the beginning of time, as we've spent much time in the earlier parts of this letter of Ephesians studying, some of the highest places of Scripture that speaks to these truths. It is the elect of God that were in paradise prior to Jesus' ascension. They are those God has set out to redeem from before the beginning of time. They are the children of the promise, as Paul refers in Romans 9. They are those who came before Christ, who were of true faith in the promised Messiah. Realize they are saved the same way we are. Say this again. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. This means they trusted in the promised Messiah before He came and died in their place. So that now that He's accomplished their redemption on the cross, He goes to be with them in paradise. In Abraham's bosom. Can you imagine, watch this, what it must have been like for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and John the Baptist and the rest of the faithful who had lived and died prior to Christ to be with Him, their Redeemer, the promised Messiah, who has won victory for them on the cross. To get to see their Redeemer face to face, surely this was an amazing time together. And while it sounds like this place is wonderful, we must remember that just like heaven one day, heaven itself will not be the climax of our satisfaction or glory. It will not be the climax of our victory over sin, church. But to be with God in all His glory will be the peak of our satisfaction and our joy. Amen? They, they waited there so long, not having received what they were promised, so that their spirits would be made perfect along with the saints in the new covenant. What do I mean by that? Well, the author of Hebrews makes it clear at the end of chapter 11. 
Chapter 11 is known as the Faith Hall of Fame, where the author of Hebrews is recounting these faithful who have come before. And he says this in verse 39 through 40. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. In other words, the old covenants point to the new covenant, and it's only in the new covenant that Jesus brings do the people of God come to this finished unity and forever togetherness, victory in Christ. They had held to the promise, but hadn't fully hadn't fully acquired it yet. But it is finished. And so Christ is now ready to take the faithful captives from Sheol, those in paradise, and lead them to heaven as he ascends to the right hand of the Father. Many of us have falsely understood or wrongly assumed that part of God's punishment on Christ for sin on our behalf was that he would suffer in Hades or in hell those three days in the grave. No. All that was needed to atone for all of our sin, past, present, and future, for all of the elect, was accomplished fully on the cross, just as Jesus declared, it is finished. So therefore, he didn't have to go pay for a little more for three days in the grave. It's finished on the cross. So it is paradise that Jesus goes to after the cross before his resurrection and then eventual ascension. Later, after Jesus' resurrection, he ascends to heaven to bring the ransomed dead with him, which means paradise, church, watch this, is no longer in Sheol. It's in the highest heaven where God dwells. Paul speaks of this reality in 2 Corinthians 12, 2-4. I don't have time to get into that. You can read it later. What does this mean for those who have trusted in Christ after the ascension of Jesus or in this present age that we're in now? When we who are of faith die, where do we go? It means when the righteous die, we are not carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, but we go to be with Christ in heaven. Philippians 1.23, Paul says, My desire is to depart, to be with Christ, for it is far better. 2 Corinthians 5.8, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. What does this mean for those who have denied Christ in the present age? The unbelieving remain guilty in their sin. And therefore they go to Hades to be in torment. Until the final judgment, when Hades gives up the dead who dwell there, and they are judged according to their deeds, And then death and Hades are thrown into hell, into the lake of fire, as it's proclaimed in Revelation 20, verse 13 through 15. Church, see the perfect plan of God made before time, as we've studied, to redeem an undeserving people to himself, promised in the old covenants and fulfilled in the new covenant. See the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and all that it means for us who believe to go to work. For those who have come before us to go to work for those who still live as we walk by faith and hope in Christ Jesus. So when Paul says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. Now we can see and savor that Christ did a mighty work to humble himself, to take on flesh, and then to humble himself even further to die on the cross in our place. See with me the second layer of Jesus' dissension to Abraham's bosom is not in any way a penalty for sin, as we've just mentioned. God's wrath has been satisfied on the cross in our place. No, instead his dissension is to be with the believing who had faithfully and patiently waited for the Redeemer See it as the beginning of his victory tour. That's the way I like to look at it. I love it. Praise God. Amen. See what God's doing. 
Look back at verse 8 and let's have some better perspective and talk about the layers that we see here. Verse 8, therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Paul is quoting the psalmist. See the quote? The psalmist who describes God as the mighty warrior who has conquered his enemies and is returning in triumph to lead them, lead his people. The quote comes from Psalm 68, 18. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious that the Lord God may dwell there. To better appreciate what Paul has in mind here, listen to some of the rest of this psalm, Psalm 68, that this quote, this verse comes from. Let me read you Psalm 68, 1 through 10. He says, God shall arise. His enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exalt before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Yahweh exalts before him. Father of the fatherless, protector of the widows, is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. But the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain. Before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the one of Israel, rain in abundance. Oh God, you shed abroad, you restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, oh God, you provided for the needy. By quoting this passage, from this passage, Paul's words here in Ephesians 4 sees Christ's victory over sin and spiritual death on behalf of his people as a fulfillment of God's victory described in these ways in Psalm 68. For this to be something that we really resonate with this morning, consider how we too were captives who've now been set free in Christ. In his victory over sin and death on our behalf. Hebrews 2, 14-15 Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and the deliverer, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We were enslaved. We were captives to sin and death. But Christ has set us free. Amen? Church, do you rightly see that sin does not have enslaving power over you any longer? Sin is not your master any longer. Christ is. Romans 6, 6-7, through we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. We die in our repentance, in our confession, in our trusting our lives to Jesus. We're set free because of Christ. Colossians 2.15, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. In Him, in Christ. John 8.36, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. If you are not truly set free and saved, The biblical call in your life is to repent and believe and be saved. For nothing you have in the temporary will carry you through eternity in torment because of your sin. Nothing you have in the temporary is in anywhere near comparison to the riches of the glory of God forever. 
See the beauty of this gospel. My prayer is that God's given you eyes to see and ears to hear. That today you would repent and believe and be saved. For you have no freedom, no redemption, no resurrection, and surely no hope apart from Jesus as Lord of your life. Church, these are the proclamations of our liberty of our freedom from sin's captivity. We have real hope in Christ, who has won the greatest and most consequential battle of our lives. The battle over our enslavement to sin, the consequences of God's wrath do our sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 54-58, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The, de- the, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Picture the ascension of Jesus' church like a victorious soldier after a long and bloody battle has defeated his foe and has returned home to rule and to reign. Paul says to the Romans in Romans 8.34, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Church, the ascension is to be taken figuratively Not in a figurative way, but in a literal way. From Mount Olivet, attended by angels, in the sight of the apostles, Christ ascended. In this, Jesus is fulfilling the type of the high priest, entering the most holy place to make intercession for his people and to send down the Spirit with his gifts and graces to them to make a way to prepare mansions of glory for them, to receive the glory promised and do Him. Church, we are the church. We are the redeemed. We are the saved and set free because of the gift of Christ's life and death and resurrection. Now listen to Paul's celebratory announcement in verse 10. As he concludes continues to remind the saints he's writing to about the gift that Jesus is to us. Look with me, verse 10, Ephesians 4.10. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fulfill all things. Here Paul highlights the reign and the ongoing authority of Jesus. Notice Paul says that he ascended far above all the heavens. This is in reference to the entire universe. In other words, all that is created, visible and invisible, Jesus is above all that he has made. Psalm 33, 6-11, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the water of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Notice here in verse 10, Paul also says that Jesus has ascended to fill all things. It's a reference to the scope of His rule and His authority. Beloved, see the position and the power of Jesus. He ascended to rule and reign at the right hand of God the Father. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1. 19 through 23. It's been a while since we've been in chapter 1. Look with me. What is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places? 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. See the reign of Christ over all things, church. See the reign of Christ over all things in your life right now. We who are of faith need to walk by faith. There's nothing you're going through that's outside of the reign of Christ. The purpose and plan of Christ to steward all these things for His perfect plan. Surely there are many moments when we don't understand why or what's going on. Praise God, I'm not God. He is. And so why do we trust Him? Because of our faith in Him. That He is able to do far more than we even dream or imagine. John famously says that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords in Revelation 17 and 19. This means that Jesus Christ is the ruler of all the kings and all the presidents and all the chiefs and all the premiers, and all the governors, and all the prime ministers. Praise God that Jesus is alive today, presiding in heaven over the rulers of the earth. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Understand that God ultimately controls who the rulers of the world are, and who they will not be. Daniel 2.21, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Now, this doesn't mean that every king or ruler rules or lives obediently to God and honors the Lord as they lead. We have enough testimony in Scripture to show that in God's providence, many rulers are set up by His providence who are wicked through and through. The ways of God as He rules over all that governs are are not simple for us to understand. They're the ways of God to, to help us be reminded of that truth. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable are His ways. If you find yourself lately going, God, I just don't get it. Yeah, Scripture has made that clear to you. How unsearchable His ways are in many of these details. But that does not change the fact that we are people of faith who walk by faith. Amen? It does mean that Jesus overrules the sinful acts of evil leaders when He ordains it to be. He makes their sin, their folly, a part of His wise plan for His perfect and eternal and holy will. What this means is that We Christians don't read the newspaper or listen to the news the way non-Christians do. We listen with the ears of Scripture and hear the providence of God, the ruler of the kings on earth, to accomplish His holy will. And so let me just remind you, brother, sister in Christ, who might be caught up in not enough Scripture reading, but your social media feed or your news intake is at a high peak. No wonder your faith is starting to feel confounded. So let's, let's listen to a lot less of lost secular man's news and let's start spending more time with the Lord's news. Good news. That our faith would be emboldened. That our eyes to see a holy God at work for what we are experiencing could get a hundredfold worse. Do you realize this? If you don't, you need to go back to Scripture and see that we are crazy wealthy right now. That the freedoms we enjoy every day are abounding. And yet, we still are quick to be knocked off our perch and full of fear and not fulfilling the commands of God. When we see a wicked society selfishly at work, 
When we see godless leaders reigning injustices and madness over the nations, over communities, we who belong to Jesus don't fold our hearts in despair. Because when you do that, you put the testimony of the hope you have in Christ away. The very purpose of your days is to be a light of that testimony among the dead and the lost around you. We pray in line with the commands of God and we trust the sovereign decrees of God who is supreme over all authorities all the time. Have you ever thought about the fact that Christ's supreme rule over the nations means He can claim whoever He wants at any time to be in His kingdom? He doesn't got to go to other premiers or, or chiefs or authorities and say, hey, can I have some of your people? How is he able to do that? How is he able just to claim whoever he wants? The Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18-20. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See Christ ongoing reign over all things. See His powerful presence in our lives. See the fact that Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. The fact that He is the ruler of the kings of the earth means He can take their citizens to be His whenever He wants This means that Christian missionaries are rightful emissaries and ambassadors of the King of Kings. And no one has the right to keep them from calling His people to submit to King Jesus with their lives. That's why our missionaries go to places that have declared, you will die if you do this here. That's why they go with confidence, because they know if God has His people to be saved, and through their testimony, they will be saved. Amen? So when Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18, I have all authority in heaven and on earth, He really means all things. Church, this is good news for our souls. For we live in a time of great secular upheaval, and evil and sin and sickness are rampant all around Can I just say clearly, our hope as Christians is not in vaccines or in policies or in policemen or in presidents. If you have found your way to hope in these things, you have lost sight of the hope that is far superior to these things that we've been given in Christ. Why would we exchange what is greatest for what is grossly secondary. Church, we have complete hope in Christ. Our victory is secure. Our days have been numbered. Let us live by faith and walk obediently to our Lord until He calls us home. Yeah, some of you are getting called home soon. Man, praise God. Praise God. Some of us have a longer road to plow. May we be caught up, busy in the work of the Lord when He calls us home. Not camped out on the side. Not finding our ways to the hills of Arkansas or wherever else we might think there might be temporary refuge. But in the midst of the work He's called us to do. He who descended is also who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things to close understand with me that jesus is finishing what god has ordained him to come and do he's fulfilling all his promises preparing a place for each of us to enjoy life with him forever jesus said in john 14 2-3 in my father's house are many rooms if it were not so would i have told you that i was going to go prepare a place for you and if i go and prepare a place for you I will come again and take you to Myself, that where I am, you may be also. He's coming to take His followers to be where He is, church. Understand, 
This is more about, again, being with God in glory than it is to be in a certain place or location. It is more about making our adoption possible through His redemption and the promise that we are saved and adopted to His forever family than it is about where world we will dwell. One of the helps for this understanding is Jesus' emphasis in John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And he will come to him and make our home with him. The Scriptures are clear. The new creation is not a city in the sky. It's a restored and improved earth. The creation made new. The Lord says in Revelation 21.5, Behold, I am making all things new. The fact that it is less about the place and more about the company we see in John 14.3. I will come again and take you to myself that where I am you will be also. He doesn't say, I'm going to come and take you to your sweet bedroom. We've done an extreme makeover on it and you're going to really like it. No. He says, I come to take you to myself that where I am, you will be also. This is the prize. Church, Jesus is the prize. Streets of gold, no more sickness, no more death, heavenly rewards are all real in glory, but they're not the point. They all point to one thing, the absolute splendor we have to be in fellowship with the King. He is the prize. To be with Him where He is, that's the longing of our hearts. Listen to Revelation 21, 1-3. Stand with me as I read this passage and we conclude our sermon and prepare for worship. Revelation 21, 1-3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Amen? In the meantime, we walk by faith and trust in Christ in all things, knowing that one day it will be so. Father, we thank you for this time in your holy word. To, to study, to, to be um, challenged, to be um, convicted, to, to mature in faith and understanding. Lord, we are desperate for the Holy Spirit to do His mighty work in us that to this time we've just spent would mean that we're not just hearers and then we leave it alone and move on to, to, to lunch and to our afternoon, but, but we're doers. That there's a welling up of worship that flows into this song, this corporate singing, and the fellowship that follows, and the prayers that follow, and the testimonies that follow, and the disciple-making that follows, because this is the purpose of our days, for your glory, for others' good. And I pray for those who are listening, those who have maybe had some church, had some religion, but it is this day that you've ordained that they finally see the beauty of the gospel, and they confess their sin and trust their lives to Jesus. For no amount of attendance or religious additives save, but Christ alone saves. Lord, let us be a people committed to you, faithful, despite what we face, obedient, bold, humble, sacrificial for your glory. We worship and sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.